0: The book of Deuteronomy in chapter 25 tonight. Um, Before we get started, next week we'll finish the book of Deuteronomy, and then the following week, as has been our practice so far, we will stop and have a night just of worship and prayer and reflection on the book as a whole. So that'll be the 6th of May, Uh, and then the 13th of May, we will not have service that night. Both of those weeks, actually, I'm going to be in France uh, teaching at a small Bible college there, and so we will pick up in the book of Joshua on the 20th of May. Um, So those are the dates. On the 6th, we'll have a worship night. On the 13th, there will not be a service, and on the 20th, uh, we will begin the book of Joshua together. Tonight, we pick up in chapter 25. We're doing the last two chapters tonight of uh, Moses' review of and exposition of the law that's already been recorded in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. And he really has two things in mind that he's doing over the course of this exposition that's now been going on for almost 10 chapters. One is to um, help Israel think through how the law will function. In the land. And so much of the law, as it's given in Exodus and Leviticus, is given in the context of Israel in the wilderness, around the tabernacle, all together. And so one of the things that we see happen in Deuteronomy is it starts to express the concerns that come alongside with being a nation, with owning property, with having an up and running economy instead of manna in the wilderness, these types of things. The second concern he has is to really make a final call before his own death, as he won't enter into the land with Israel, uh, a call for Israel to keep the covenant. And so it's important that we see this exposition of the law in that sermonic sense, that it's really just to constantly point to and call them to and remind them to um, the covenant that they have been given. So, picking up here in chapter 25, verse 1. If there is a dispute between men, and they come into the court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then, if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense." Now here we're talking about corporal punishment which is not something as a society we engage in anymore but there's a few things we should notice um, before we get too uncomfortable with this Uh, and the first is that primarily this is about setting limitations on this practice. Um, the practice has been referenced one other time in Deuteronomy. Uh, we find it commonly not just in the nation of Israel, but you may remember in Paul's own ministry across the Roman Empire. Um, on multiple occasions, he dealed, uh, he received uh, the punishment that we're being talked about, uh, that we are talking about here. But I want you to know specifically the limitations and so first off this punishment is fit into the same justice system of Israel that we've seen so far which emphasizes the importance of due process and of seeking justice. That's why it says acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. This is not referring to any form of kangaroo court or martial law or these types of things. The expectation is that the judges are doing their due ju- diligence to bring justice. The second limitation I want you to notice is that, um, that the beating is to happen right there in the judge's presence, okay? The judge here is seen as the metric of justice and he needs to observe the process to make sure that it's not taken advantage of. This isn't... Um, this isn't a beating that happens behind closed doors, but is also public, okay? Then notice the limit it reads for us in verse 3. Forty stripes may be given to him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. Now, notice there that a limitation is set, and we can assume that this is a maximum sentencing limitation. In other words, for any crime of which corporal punishment is going to be the consequence, no more than 40 stripes can be given, but we should assume for smaller cases, much less than 40 would be prescribed, okay? Um, the Jews were so intent on keeping this uh, that they only would prescribe up to 39, just in case there was a loss of count. It would never be an occasion where there was 41 Stripes. There was always a level of protection towards overdoing it and even leniency in these. Um, and so this is stated, and like I said, we don't necessarily have a place for this in our day and age, but we should recognize as moderns, we have this overemphasis on prison, which actually tends to leave its mark on those who go through sentencing. You know, in fact, there's a big debate about this going on in Seattle right now that has to do with uh, how much we need to know as employers or as landlord or landlords about our tenants' past prison history. Because if you have a prison history, that can now exclude you from society, and one of the advantages of punishments like this, like corporal punishment, or even if you go back to the early American history where they would throw someone in the stocks, is when it was over, it was absolutely over. The sentence had been served, it was done, um, and it was done relatively quickly. Now, let's keep moving. It seems to jump around, and notice what it says in verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Now, the circumstance that it's envisioning here is that in um, separating the wheat from the chaff, in preparing the wheat and grinding it in The circumstance of using a mill to create uh, flour, effectively, that's what we're talking about is these types of circumstances. One of the ways you can do that would be to tie a large stone to the back of an animal like an ox, and he would drag it over the wheat, and that would thresh and crush the wheat. Um, And what it says here is when you're doing that, you're not to close the ox's mouth with a muzzle. Now, the idea here is that the ox should be allowed to graze while he does the work, that you shouldn 't be so strict on your profits that you restrict the animal who 's doing all the labor from benefiting it from it whatsoever. now what 's interesting is uh, of all the verses in Deuteronomy, this is one of the ones that 's quoted in the New Testament. in fact it 's quoted twice, and both of the times. Uh, One of them in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and the other in 1 Timothy, Paul is not talking about oxen at all. Instead, he's talking about pastors and missionaries. And so, uh, in one place, in 1 Timothy, he says that we should um, (coughs) give honor and even payment to those who make their living by the gospel for, and then he quotes from two places. One of them is here. For... The scriptures say, do not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain, and then he quotes the labor is worthy of his hire, which is actually something that Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. And so he makes it a foundation um, of of paying pastors. He goes a little bit more in depth in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and so we'll read that one together tonight. Again, the topic he's talking about has to do with um, those who labor in the ministry, So pastors and missionaries um, making their living or being supported by those they are ministering to. Now, interestingly enough, Paul says that this is the right of those ministers, but in Corinth, he refuses that right. He doesn't take a paycheck. He very intentionally refuses to take their money because he wants them to know he's not in it for the money. And in Corinth, where all public speakers and all philosophers were constantly paid, and that's how they made a living, he chose to stand out from that. But, uh, but he makes clear uh, in, verse, uh, in the opening of chapter 9 that it's totally appropriate. And then he says this in verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox, when it treads out the grain, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he speak this for entirely our sake? <clears throat> it was written for our sake because the plowmen should plow in hope and the threshers should thresh in hope of the sharing of the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? And so he asks the question here and he says, is this verse merely about oxen? Now, don't don't misunderstand Paul here. He's not saying, clearly, this verse has nothing to do with animals. He's, He's not saying this is best understood allegorically or spiritually. Forget its sounding meaning. This is all symbolic. He's not saying that. He's just saying, is it merely for animals that God is concerned? In other words, what he's saying is that this sets a precedent, a standard that is much broader than how we treat animals, God cares about the treatment of animals to the degree that we're required here to make sure that they benefit from the work that they do. Paul's point here is that that should be a broad principle that affects affects people at all levels. And so again, as we've seen throughout Deuteronomy, not only does God care about the treatment of animals, but God cares about the treatment of workers in general. He cares about working conditions. And Paul updates that and says in the same way as God calls missionaries into the field and pastors into the church, and Jesus himself says, like I mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 5, a laborer is worthy of his hire, then we should make sure that the physical needs of those who serve are taken care of. Continuing on here in 25 verse 5, if brothers dwell together... And one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first of her sons whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. And so the circumstance that's presented for us here is that a man takes a wife and before they have any children, the man passes away. What is prescribed here is because that man doesn't have any descendants, has no place for his inheritance to go. Remember that the land that Israel is coming into, they're coming into this land as the gift of God, and that gift is to be perpetual. It's not to be traded away, bought, or sold. It's to stay in the family line, in its same proportion, in perpetuity. Even if you had had to sell your property uh, to get out of debt, there were mechanisms in place so that it would be restored to you. It couldn't be permanently lost. The idea here, though, is that a man's descendants or his line, his lineage, ends because he doesn't have any children. And so what's presented is a way to raise up a child in his name, even though it's technically his stepchild. It's, it's, uh, it's the son of his wife, yes, but of his brother, now, it's worth pointing out here that it makes very clear that this only applies if, uh, uh, let's see, verse, uh, oh, right, verse 5 at the very beginning. If brothers dwell together. That's important, okay? Um, what that tells us here is that the brothers who are qualified to take this woman as their own wife are ones that live in the same household. Okay, that's not just merely because of convenience. What is envisioned here is that they have started this household and the younger brother has moved into the household because he is not married. Okay, he is an eligible bachelor. That's built right into the law. And so if if you, uh, if you have a family with three brothers and all three of them are married and one of them dies without having any children, it's not referring to those other married brothers taking a second wife to raise up in their name. It very specifically envisions here when brothers are dwelling together, in other words, when they don't have their own family. Um, the second thing we see here is that it's not an obligation. It's not like the brother doesn't have any way out, okay, and so it says in verse 7, if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Now, we need to notice something very clearly here, and that's the fact that this woman has the legal right to take her case before the courts, Sometimes the people of Israel and the laws in the Old Testament are given a bad rap of treating women as property, and that just doesn't hold up. Here, a woman has rights, and she has the rights, the right to get those rights, to bring it before the court system, to represent herself because of this case. Now, what I want you to notice in the way that this plays out is this is brought out publicly, and although the brother has the choice to opt out, he has to bear the shame of that choice, okay? And so the the fact that it is not legally required is there, but what it shows is that this brother has no concern for the lineage of his brother, his his dead brother. And so she comes and she says, the husband is unwilling, verse eight, the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up, into them, up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Now, there's two things there. The second one's probably easier to deal with. That's clearly shameful, right? It's a recognition of the fact that he is publicly shaming this woman and her brother by not engaging in this, and so it's represented by spitting in his face. But pulling the sandal off his foot, that one's a little bit more difficult, Now, there are some significance to sandals and other things in the ancient Near East that we could point to, but at the very least, I want you to recognize that the woman goes home with this man's sandal. It's effectively a receipt of this public case. It once again comes down to the rights of the woman, okay? When the woman doesn't receive her brother as a husband, she is free now to marry outside the family. That sandal is the evidence that he has abdicated that possibility. So now she's free to remarry, okay? This is about protecting her rights. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Uh, In other words, reputation is on the line, okay? See, one of the things we need to keep in mind for the people of Israel that we don't always see is how much their lives and the blessings of Israel were built around hope and expectation. Okay. God here is talking to people who are going to enter into a land and after this incredible uh, handful of years of war, they're going to start fresh. And God has promised that if they keep the covenant, they are going to reap tremendous benefits and blessings of those lands. In fact, if you read closely, God's entire purpose in raising up Israel is for this bigger mission in sending the Messiah. And so you'll see oftentimes this expectation in the practice of Israel that looks beyond their own death. And one of the ways it looks beyond it is through their descendants, okay? But even in their own death, think of Joseph. Here's Joseph and Jacob, both of them. They're living in Egypt, and God has promised that he's going to bring their descendants into the promised land. And so they gave very specific burial commandments. They say, okay, you let the Egyptians preserve our body, you know, like ancient mummies. And then you hold on to our corpses and when God, as he will, as he promises, when he brings you out, you bring our bodies with you and you bury us in Israel. Okay. Why? They want to be in the land. They know that's the place where God is going to work. And so they want to be there. And so <clears throat> the termination of an Israelite's line and not having any descendants is the denial of them participating in the promise that God has given them through those same descendants. That's what makes this so serious. Now, verse 11. When men fight with another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. Okay. So once again, circumstances here. Two men are having a brawl. The woman's concerned about her husband so she intervenes uh, and she basically tries to stop the fight by grabbing, grabbing uh, the opponent by his genitals. Uh, now, this seems almost so specific that it doesn't need to be in here. You know what I mean? There are so many laws in the book of Deuteronomy. Why is this one to come up? Now, one of the things we need to recognize is when we read this in English... It seems to be the only law in the entire Old Testament that requires mutilation as a consequence. Okay? If you're familiar with Alibaba and the Forty Thieves or Aladdin or um, any of these things that are set in an Eastern culture, losing a hand as punishment is probably something you've encountered, you know, as for example, the consequence of stealing. We don't see that in the book of Deuteronomy, except here. Okay? Now we could just receive that as it is and go, clearly, the concern here is that the man, like the last law, would lose the opportunity to bear children. And that's what makes this so serious. But the, uh, the code that's given throughout the book of Deuteronomy for measuring punishment is this lex talonis, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That doesn't seem to be at play here. If, if, if that's as it reads, then we have the most odd and extreme punishment recorded in the book. But here's the thing. If you read this closely, um, I'll, I'll point it out to you. The word hand in English occurs three times. And so it says here, if he draws near to rescue his husband from the hand of him who is beating him, okay, uh, and she puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Okay, that sounds one to one to one, very simple, very obvious. That third word is not the same. It's not the same word as the first two. It's not the normal word for hand at all. If it is translated in relationship to the hand, which it's done a few times in the Old Testament, it's the palm. Okay? The palm. Now, cutting off your palm sounds weird. The word is a really broad one, to be honest it's always used of cupping things, okay? So, for example, when it talks about the slings of Israel, don't think necessarily of a slingshot, but even a slingshot has that sling, that piece of leather that wraps around the stone. It sometimes uses this word. It always means for something that cups. Now, interestingly enough, this word is also used, this third word that's translated hand here in the passage, is also used in the Song of Solomon, and it's one of the innuendos of the book. The book is full of innuendo. In fact, we should stop for a second, and I should just point out to you that the Jewish language is one of euphemism, period. There are no biological or anatomical words for things that involve private parts, sexual acts, period, in the Hebrew language. Every one of them is euphemistic, so, for example, what's the common ways of talking about sexual activity in the Bible? Lying together or knowing a person? Those are euphemisms. Even the word here for private parts, which, by the way, is an English euphemism, is a Hebrew euphemism. It means the hidden things. That's all it says here. Okay. And so if your translation says the genitals or even the testicles, that's not necessarily accurate, even if it's accurate. Hebrew is a euphemistic language, okay? And so we find in the book of Song of Songs extensive use of this language that reveals just, or uh, that hides just as much as it reveals. You can say that the book of Song of Songs is sensual. You cannot say that it's explicit. You can't, okay? Because the imagery is always both saying and revealing. And the same thing is happening in this passage. So, Here's how the word is used in Song of Songs and in a few other places. It seems to speak of the pubic area, okay, of this area in the lower abdomen, which is curved, which is rounded. In fact, notice this passage uh, in the book of Isaiah chapter 7. Now, Isaiah chapter 7 does not use the same word, uh, and I will explain why in just a second, but it does use a euphemism uh, in a similar way. Okay. Chapter 7 of Isaiah and verse 20 says In that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and he will sweep away the beard also. Is one of those odd? shave the head the beard and the feet okay foot is another euphemistic phrase in the bible for male genitalia okay it's not hobbits that we're talking about here it's men okay interestingly enough that word for shave there is the same word used here for cut off it's not the word that means to sever it's the word that means to shave and so the idea here is not one of damage for damage, but shame for shame, okay? This woman shames this man by this behavior, and so she is publicly shamed by being publicly shaven, okay? Now, that's still in some ways extreme, but it's very different than we have a tendency to read it in the English, okay? Now, verse 13. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have. A full and fair measure you ha- shall have. Weights and measures here is talking about economics. It's talking about trade. Okay? This is a trade-based culture. There's not necessarily a currency at this point. And even in the ancient world when there was currency, that currency was crafted by weight. Okay, so you'd have silver coins, but the silver coins would be weighed out, okay, because they were really um, a one-for-one relationship between how much silver you had and how much it was worth. You know, our money now is not backed by this type of system, um, and so that means that anytime you went to the marketplace any time you made a major or a small sale, there would be a utilization of these weights and measures to determine the value of the good you were getting, a pound of wheat, for the value you were paying, an ounce of silver, okay? And the recognition here is that that makes it possible to take your weight that you use for measurement and shave it down or add a little bit underneath and use one set of measures that are too heavy for the amount of grain you're buying and another set of measures that are too light for the amount of money you're spending. Okay? In other words, what we're talking about here are hidden economic practices that take advantages of other people. And not only does Deuteronomy deal with this extensively, but so does Proverbs. And Proverbs just says that God hates false weights and measures. And so instead here, they are to do and have fair business practices integrity in their economics okay in fact it's tied directly to the land itself a full and fair weight you shall have a full and fair measure you shall have that your days may be long in the land that the lord your god is giving you for all who do such things all who act dishonestly are an abomination to the lord your god Now, this is just coming into my head, so I could be wrong, but there's an occasion in Proverbs where it says six things the Lord hates, yes, even seven. I'm pretty sure false weights and measures is on that list, but deception, I know, is on that list three times in three different ways, a false witness, a lying tongue, and then I'm pretty sure the third one is false weights and measures. Dishonesty is something that puts Israel at risk. They are to have integrity in their business practices. And we need to recognize that today we live in a world that can often excuse false business practices by saying that they're industry-wide, okay? And just saying, well, this is just how it's done. That's not, of course, that's not how God sees things. We were talking this morning about the critics of Paul in the church of Corinth who measure themselves by themselves. And he says, and they do that without understanding. And I would say the same thing here, that as Christians, we don't look to the industry standards to determine what's right and what's wrong. We look to a different standard, a perfect standard, a a full metric. Verse 17 Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail and those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you and the land that the Lord your God has given you for inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Okay? So first thing it says here is remember what Amalek did. And when it describes it, it says he came up behind you as you were on your way to the promised land and cut off the tail. In other words, they took out the stragglers, okay? Who were the ones who lag behind in, an, in a march like this of a bunch of refugees? It's the sick, the elderly, and the young, okay? Now, the Amalekites are not in the land, they're not one of the tribes that God has promised to bring judgment upon, throw, overthrow, and give their land to Israel. They're outside the promised land. But once all that's settled, um, they're to deal with Amalek. And it's not here about them being foreigners. It's about the way that they behaved. Not merely against Israel. It's the inhumanity of their practices that they would attack the weakest and the young at the end and so notice it's almost paradoxical at the end it says you shall blot out the memory from amalek and then it says you shall not forget which is it are you to wipe away the memory and and not remember or are you to not forget and the point here is that they're to bring about consequence on amalek and they're not to forget to bring about the consequence okay um he's making a rhetorical play on words here um I want to point out again, if we look at this whole chapter, we've been kind of all over the map. There are those who argue for structure in the laws given in Deuteronomy, um, and the most common one, as we've talked about over and over again, is to use the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments that are quoted in chapter 6 as a guideline that he lays them on the table and then he starts at the beginning and works his way through. It's these last four chapters where that is the hardest to do, although there are some ingenious approaches to that. So, for example, going back to the man who has no sons, that is you shall not steal. Because what you're doing is stealing away his future prosperity for his future children. Um, but it does require that kind of ingenuity, and I'm an Occam's razor sort of guy. If you're familiar with Occam's razor, it's an old Greek philosophical principle that says the simplest answers are to be referred to the more complex. In other words, every time you add an assuming that to your hypothesis, the less likely it gets, okay? Occam's razor says, cut it off. And so I would say the simple argument here is that he's just trying to broadly cover his bases uh, and and that the structure here um, isn't discernible. I don't want to say because there isn't any. I just want to say because the structure isn't the main point of what he's trying to do here. He's trying to paint a broad picture of what faithfulness looks like. And if you learn anything from the book of Deuteronomy, you learn that faithfulness to God is holistic. It touches your kitchen. It touches your work life, it touches your relationships, it touches the way you treat animals, it touches uh, your farming practices, it it moves through all of these territories, even your foreign policy, as we see at the end here of chapter 25. We'll see a little bit more of that in chapter 26. Um, So chapter 26, verse 1. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, You shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you'll put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. And you'll go to the priest who's in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Now we've already seen that there was a festival of first fruits, okay? It was part of the annual practice of Israel to bring the first part of their harvest before God. But this is the first of the festivals of the first fruits, and it involves something particular. It involves a particular practice, and it's not just a presentation. It has a verbal aspect of it. In fact, many commentators argue that here in chapter 26 of Deuteronomy, we find the best version we could imagine of a creed for Israel, okay? And so they come, and they say, God has done what he promised. He has brought me into the land. He has made it a fruitful land. And then verse 5, and you shall make a response before the Lord your God, A wandering Aramean was my father. Okay. Now, the reference there is probably to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. But Jacob is the one who we specifically know spent time in Aram. Okay. Where he uh, lives with his father-in-law, Laban, and marries Rachel and Leah. Um, And so, the recognition here that he's making is his heritage. He's to tell his own testimony. And it starts... With his descendant, who was just a wanderer, Jacob, with nothing, exiled from the promised land, had nothing. And he goes on, he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, that's the end of the book of Genesis, and there became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And so the first thing he says here is, I came from nothing, and God has turned us into a nation. And then, secondly, verse six, The Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. And we cried to the Lord God of our fathers and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. So the second thing he says is, I was a slave and God has set me free. I've been redeemed. Verse nine, he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you'll rejoice in all the good things that the Lord your God has given you and to your house and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. And so the first part here is a reflection on who God is and what he's done. God is their deliverer. God is the one who brought them from nothing to something. God is the giver of all good gifts, including uh, the crops that are presented here. But notice it doesn't end there. Verse 12 When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat with you in your towns and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house. And moreover, I've given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, according to all your commandments that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. And so the second thing he says here is about his behavior. And what he says, and this is every third year when he comes and he pays the tithe that is provided for the poor, okay? Every third year, he says, I have done my piece in taking a tenth and giving it, as you require to the Levite, to the sojourner, to the foreigner. And then broadly built on the back of that, notice, I have kept all of your commandments and your covenant. Okay? Now what I want you to notice is how these two things function together. God, you are the giver, you are the one I worship, you are the one who redeemed me, and then I have been faithful to take care of the poor. These two things together stand in for a summary of the whole covenant. In fact, we can use Jesus' summary to touch on what we're seeing here. Jesus says that all of the law is fulfilled or hung on two commandments, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's this great confession about who I was when God found me, and that I would love my neighbor as myself. That's this confession that I have not withhold even from the least of my neighbor in my commitments to him. In fact, notice this, what Paul does in the book of Galatians chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says this. He says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Now, what would you expect Paul to say next? The whole law is fulfilled in one word. We would expect, I think rightly, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But notice, he says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Why can he do that? He can do that. He can bypass one and go to the other because he knows how interwoven they are. That if you truly love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will demonstrate it in loving your neighbor as yourself. John makes the same argument in 1 John. He says, why do you say that you love God whom you have not seen when you do not love your neighbor and you see him all the time? There's a coinciding between these two things. They're inherently connected and interwoven and so they make a perfect summary here as they enter into the land and begin to receive of it to reflect not just on what God has done but on the covenant itself which is why it exists here in chapter 26. Continuing on here, verse 14, I've not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning or removed any of it while I was unclean or offered any of it to the dead. I've obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I've done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people, Israel, that from the grounds that you have given us, as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so I want you to notice in the end here, there's a looking to the future, and that look is a look of dependence, right? It says, You have given to me, and that's why I'm here. Please continue to bless and continue to give. And so the cycle here continues. Verse 16, this day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. This is the conclusion of the exposition of the law here. It's the final paragraph. And so in review, he says, everything that I've just said, God has called you to do these things. He says that you shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart, with all your soul. You've declared today that the Lord is your God. And you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and commandments and rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today. Do you see a two declaration? So he says, even though they haven't verbally said anything, he said, by your presence today, you have said, we will love you and keep your rules. And he says, by my presence today, God is saying to you, verse 18, the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you. And that you're to keep all his commandments and he will set you in praise and fame and honor high above all nations that he has made. And you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. And so he he (coughs) recognizes here that God is committed to making Israel famous, honorable, high and even glorious above the nations but that second line explains why. That they will be a holy people to the Lord as he has promised. In other words, they are to reflect who God is. And through God's favor on them, they demonstrate the goodness of God. One of the prophets put the, puts it this way. He says, Israel is my garment. And the word that's used there is like of a fashionable belt. Okay? He wants to put on display through Israel his own beauty. And unfortunately, the prophet, I believe it's Jeremiah, goes on to say, but this garment is rat-eaten and dirty and soiled. It doesn't do its purpose. But the whole idea here was that they were to be recognized by the whole world and the world would be forced to ask, what is it about Israel? And the clear answer, because they are holy to the Lord, they don't dress like the nations, they don't eat like the nations, is the thing that's different is that God is in their midst chapter 27. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. Okay. So in chapter 27, we're going to get two different things there to do when they get in the land. And the first one is as soon as they get across the river, they're to set up these stones and you should think of them like pillars these are not small stones these are large stones and then they're to cover them with plaster or literally with lime so they bleach them white so that they can write on them and so verse three you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the lord your god is giving you now that's probably a reference to the entire book of deuteronomy what's sometimes called the book of the covenant that might sound like too much writing to put on 12 stones, uh, but that's only 1,000 words per stone. And even the Code of Hammurabi, which is significantly larger than the Book of Deuteronomy, on the stone we have it on, which is, I think, seven feet tall, it only takes up half of it. Okay. Uh, so it's not really that much. But notice what they're doing here. They're entering into the land, and they have an instant reminder and memorial of what? The covenant. Written down, visible uh, for everybody to see. So verse 4, when you've crossed over the Jordan, you'll set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You'll wield no iron tool on them, and you'll build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. Now, why is there to be no iron tool there? Two reasons. One, because this is not the tabernacle. This is not the place for sacrifice. And so it's to distinguish the difference between the bronze laver and the bronze altar and the bronze altar of incense or the gold altar of incense and all of these things. Um, But the second reason is as they build this, it's not to be a man-made impressive manifestation of the beautiful capabilities of men. It's not the altar in its beauty and its construction and its design that should be focused on. It's just to be just a pile of rocks. What's important is the God it represents. So they build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you'll sacrifice peace offerings, and you'll eat there, and you'll rejoice before the Lord your God, and you'll write on the stones the words of the law very plainly. Why? Why plainly? So that they can be read. So that, in fact, they can be read for years to come. So that they can be reviewed, and so Israel can be reminded. Verse 9. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to Israel, Keep silent and hear, O Israel. This day you've become the people of the Lord your God. You'll therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes when I command you today. That day Moses charged the people, saying, When you've crossed the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, and these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulon, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men in Israel in a loud voice, and then we have these curses. (coughs) So here, these two mountains and the valley between, they divide all of the peoples between them with the Levites, and we'll find out in the book of Joshua, the ark uh, right in the middle. And what is the significance of these two places? Now, granted, they're pretty central to Israel as the promised land, but on top of that, in the middle of this, is the place where Abraham first enters into the land, Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. Uh, and God says, this is the land that I'm giving you. Okay. So as Israel enters in for the first time, they come to the same spot and they reflect on God's faithfulness. But as they do so, they divide into two camps. Uh, And the idea here is that one is going to speak the blessings and one is going to speak the curses. Now, we'll actually see this play out in the book of Joshua. Here, he's just giving the idea, but in doing so, remember that he's preaching a sermon. So he chooses 12 curses, and as we read over them, see if you can figure out what they all have in common, because like the book of Deuteronomy as a whole, they kind of move all over the place. Here it is, verse 15. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Amen here, it comes from a word that just means we agree, or that is true, or so be it. Okay? And so what they're doing is affirming the reality of these curses. Let it be. And in doing so, they're affirming the covenant. Verse 16. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother. And the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark and the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road and the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice, due the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow and the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he's uncovered his father's nakedness and the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal and the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or of his mother, and all the people shall say Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother in law, and the people shall say Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say Amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say Amen. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say Amen. Now, that last one there is clearly a summary, right? It's a conclusion. But what do the other ones have in common? Some of them deal with sexual morality. Some of them deal with taking care of the poor. Some of them deal with moving a landmark, which has to do with um, boundaries of property. Some of them have to do with idolatry and honoring father and mother. What they all have in common is that they uh, can be carried out in secret. In fact, it's mentioned in the first one and in the last one specifically as kind of inclusio that ties it all together. But the idea of misleading a blind man is no one's around so you take advantage of someone who can't see where they're going, right? Uh, The idea of the ones that deal with sexual morality all happen actually in the household, right? In the privacy of your own home with family members and so it may not be discovered. The moving of a landmark is not something you do at a birthday party, it's something you do in the cover of night. So why is that significant? It's significant here because Moses wants the people to recognize that the consequences are not merely limited by the justice system, that God is going to hold individual Israelites accountable. In fact, we'll see how this plays out in a few chapters, so let's keep going. Chapter 28. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey (coughs) the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you when you come in, and blessed you will be when you go out. And so basically, if they keep the covenant, God promises that the land will yield, that their animals will do well, that they'll have many children, um, that God will watch over these things. In fact, he continues in verse 7, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They'll come out against you (laughs) one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as your people, holy to himself as he sworn to you. You will keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, and all the people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your livestock, in the fruit of your ground, within the land the Lord God swore to give your fathers the Lord will open to you his good treasury in the heavens to give rain to your land in its season to bless all the work of your hands and you shall lend to many nations but you shall not borrow and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail and you shall not only go up but not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you today being careful to do them. Thanks Richard. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words I've commanded you today today, to the right hand or the left or any other gods to serve them. And so basically, if they keep the covenant, God is going to abundantly, visibly abundantly to all nations, it will be clear that they are a blessed people. Now, something we need to remember here, okay, is that this is talking about the nation and not the individual. And so, specifically here, he's talking about the broad reality of what will exist if the nation is faithful. Now, if you've got your Bible open, you can notice that this is the longest chapter in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, In fact, even if you don't follow the chapters, but just the natural breaks in the structure of Deuteronomy, this is by far the longest section, and we are not halfway through it, even though we're done with the blessings. The rest of the chapter are devoted to curses, okay? There is two paragraphs of blessings given here. There are almost 12 paragraphs of curses. Now, one of the reasons this is the case is because Deuteronomy is clearly structured after a common ancient document for that area called the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. It's laid out in the exact same way, and suzerain vassal treaties, these treaties between people who were living on a Lord's land and the Lord that they were uh, you know, responsible to, that had given them the land, uh, they always ended the same way with blessings and curses, okay? the consequences if the covenant wasn't kept. Interestingly enough, the curses were always longer. So there's a structural reason, an expectation reason, but there's another reason, and that's because Moses' primary goal in Deuteronomy is to warn. He wants them to feel the weight of this decision. That's why he's going to say, I've set before you today life and death, and he wants them in this passage to taste death, okay? So he continues here in verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Now, as we read through this, you're going to see that it's very broad. It touches a lot of things. You're also going to see, although it it touches a lot of things, it's progressive, okay? And so it's going to lay out one thing, and then it's going to broaden out, and it's going to deal with the same things in a bigger level over and over again. Um, I actually want to just read the whole way through, and then we'll talk about it. I'm sure I'll make a few asides as we go, but for the most part, let's just read it through. Uh, notice it starts parallel to the blessing. So, curse shall you be in the city, verse 16, and shall you be in the field. Curse shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Curse shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock. Cursed you shall be when you come in and when you go out. The Lord will send on you the curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until it's consumed you off the land that you're entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever, inflammation, fiery heat, with drought, with blight, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. Those are farming metaphors, right? No rain is falling. It's like there's a huge metal ceiling. The ground isn't, uh, isn't soft, and it'll be hard to work like metal. Verse 24, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From the heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You'll go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you'll be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch, which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of the mind, and you'll grope at noonday, noonday as the blind grope in the darkness, and you'll not prosper in your ways. Now, notice how this is intentionally following the plagues that came upon Egypt. Okay, the sicknesses, the darkness at noonday. It's a it's a recognition here that the same things that brought them out of slavery, they will be brought back into if they don't keep the covenant. Continues here in verse. Uh, Uh, verse 29, halfway through, you should be only oppressed and robbed continually and there will be no one to help you. You'll betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You'll build a house, but you'll not dwell in it. You'll plant a vineyard, but you should not enjoy its fruit. If you remember, those were the three exceptions to Israel's military campaign. If any of you have recently taken a wife, recently bought a house, recently planted a vineyard, go enjoy it instead of going to war. But here he says... Things will be so fierce, you won't get to enjoy the benefits of any of these things. Verse 31, your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face, but it will not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. And so here it's that their children will be sold into slavery. Verse 33, a nation you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall only be oppressed and crushed continuously so that you're driven mad by the sights your eyes see. The Lord will strike you on the knees and the legs with grievous boils, which cannot be healed, from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. Now let's just pause there for a second, because this is pretty intense, and let's just draw one point of what we're seeing here. And the first one that I think we have to recognize tonight is God's sovereignty, okay? If they do not keep the covenant, he holds all the cards. Their life when it comes to crops, the way they're treated by the enemies, uh, natural disasters, plagues and sicknesses, it's all in his hands, okay? Now let's continue, verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set up over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known so they'll be removed from the land. There you shall serve other gods of wood and stone and you'll become a horror, a proverb, a byword among the people where the Lord will lead you away. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? When we say that phrase, even outside of Christian circles, people think of judgment and destruction. That's what it means here when it says Israel become a byword. They'll be used as a, as a reference to terrible destruction and horrible fates. Verse 38, "'You'll carry much seed into the field and, it, and gather in little, "'for the locusts will consume it. "'You'll plant vineyards and dress them, "'but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes. "'The worms shall eat them. "'You'll have olive trees throughout all your territory, "'but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, "'for the olives shall drop off. "'So despite their planting, there will be no yield in the crops. "'Everything will be destroyed.'" You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they'll go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of the ground. The sojourner who's among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all these things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies, who the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness lacking everything, and he'll put a yoke of iron on your neck until he's destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand." a hard-faced nation who shall show no respect to the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you're destroyed. It'll not leave you grain, wine, or oil or the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they've caused you to perish. And so notice here, it's escalated. And so now a particular army from the north, unmerciful, in a language they do not understand, is going to come in and it's going to take the whole nation in siege, okay? Like I said, you can't always discern the progression in these things, but this is one of the clearest places where it takes a step forward. Everything before this happens in the land and in these curses, they're going to be forcibly removed entirely from the land. Look at verse 52. They shall besiege you in all your towns until the high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. You'll eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you. So the idea here is of cannibalism because of starvation. In the siege and in the distress which your enemies shall distress you, the man who's the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of his children whom he has left, so that he'll not give to any of them the flesh, uh, any of the flesh of his children who he is eating because he has nothing else left. So it's a very dark picture here that not only is he eating his child, but he won't share with the rest of his family. It's a complete breakdown of society, even at the familial level. The most tender and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender will begrudge the husband she embraces to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet, her children whom she bears because she's lacking everything. She will eat them secretly in the siege. And in the distress which your enemies shall distress you in your towns. Okay. And so here it talks of these people being so merciless and so devoted that they just set the entire nation under siege. And inside they just starve and the world turns to chaos. But it does not end there. Verse 58. If you're not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear the glorious and awesome name of the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, sicknesses and grievous and lasting. He will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness and every affliction uh, that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you're destroyed. And so he gives this junk drawer phrase. All of the ones that I didn't mention, the ones that aren't written here, will come upon you. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you'll be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord took delight in you in doing good and multiplying you. So the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you'll be plucked off the land you're entering to take possession of it. So here the siege comes to an end. And now they're put in chains and they're moved out of the land. Verse 64, the Lord your God will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite. And there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread. You'll have no assurance of your life. In the morning, you'll say, if only it were evening. And in the evening, you'll say, if only it were morning because of the dread that your heart shall feel. In other words, there's no reprieve. They'll always wish it wasn't now, okay? Uh, And the sights that your eyes shall see and the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised you should never make again. And you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. So it's very bleak here, but it's important that we recognize the progression that I mentioned here. Okay. The way that all of these things are to, uh, are to work in Israel is like warning bells. Okay. God gives them tangible signs that they're off track and headed for judgment, headed for trouble, <coughs> forsaken the covenant. In fact, listen to the words of Amos chapter 4. I've mentioned to you before in the last few weeks that the book of Deuteronomy is the foundation of all of the prophets and we can see that very clearly here when we look in the book of Amos. So here in Amos chapter 4, look at verse 6. I gave you... Now remember, Amos is writing hundreds and hundreds of years after the book of Deuteronomy, after Israel has forsaken the Lord and... He's speaking as a prophet, calling them back to the covenant. This is what he says. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, that starvation and lack of bread in all your places, but you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there was three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and no rain on another city. On One field would have rain and the field which did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locust devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Do you hear how familiar this is? Basically, Amos is connecting the warnings of Deuteronomy with the reality of Israel's history. And he's saying, wake up. All of the signs are here. God is doing just what he promised. At this point, Israel is still in the land, but not for much longer. Another example we could turn to is the book of Joel. The book of Joel is about locusts, okay? And so Joel says basically that the locusts have been so bad that one swarm, what one swarm left, the swarm that came in behind it ate, and what they left behind, the next swarm. And he says, till there's nothing left. And you would expect his next words would be ones of comfort. And effectively, he says, brother, you haven't seen anything yet. If you don't repent, something a lot worse than locusts is coming an army from the north that will viciously destroy us and take us out of the land. And yet he finishes his book by saying, but even now, it's not too late if you repent and God will restore even the years the locusts have eaten. These are the warnings of the prophets and they're built on this. In fact, listen in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel chapter 9. We find Daniel, and he's been reading the book of Jeremiah, and he realizes that he needs to pray, and this is what he says. He says in verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing on us great calamity. For under whole heaven there's not been done anything like what's been done against Jerusalem. As it's written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and brought us upon us. So how does Daniel read it? He looks and he goes, (coughs) even still, everything God promised has come to pass and we still haven't come to our senses. We still haven't woken up and begged God to take us back, repented of our past acts. And so what he prays next is a prayer of national confession. We are wrong. A, A prayer of national forgiveness. But it's based here on the book of Deuteronomy. So going back to chapter 28, Actually, we'll, we'll jump into chapter 29. He lays out the blessings, he lays out the curses, and it says in verse 1 of 29, "'These are the words of the covenant "'the Lord commanded Moses to make "'with the people of Israel in the land of Moab "'beside the covenant that he made with them at Horeb. <coughs> "'Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, "'You've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes "'in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh "'and to all his servants and to all his land, "'the great trials that your eyes saw, "'the signs and those great wonders.'" But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I've led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn off your feet. You've not eaten bread and you've not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I'm the Lord, your God. So he reviews their history and things aren't looking good. He says, God brought you out from a mighty hand or with a mighty hand out of Egypt and you didn't get the lesson of who he really was he says, so God has given you 40 years to learn it by his provision. And he says, not only did he give you manna from heaven, but you're still wearing the same outfit you left Egypt in, and it's lasted 40 years. Your shoes haven't worn through. Your clothes are still together. God's presence in Israel's life, the reality of who he is, is right there in front of them. And he goes on, verse 7, when you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against a battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all you do. He's saying, Look, you have all of the evidence presented to you. You know the Lord, you've seen who he is, you've tasted his blessings. He continues in verse 10. You're standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, the sojourner who's in your camp, the one who chops wood, the one who draws water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, that he may be your God, as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It's not with you alone that I'm making this sworn covenant, but whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord, our God, and whoever's not here with us today. In other words, their descendants, okay? Verse 16, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt, how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed and have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone and silver and gold, which were among them, beware lest there be among you any man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who when he hears the words of this sworn covenant blesses himself in his heart saying, I'll be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. He says this will lead to a sweeping away of moist and dry alike. In other words, he envisions now, he's been talking about at the national level he envisions somebody in Israel going, Everybody else is going to keep it. I'm going to live the life I want to live and I'll reap the benefits. Okay. They'll do the work of keeping the covenant, but I'll enjoy the blessing because I'm just one person and I'm doing it quietly. And he says, <laughs> he says, that attitude, that attitude is going to lead to national destruction. Verse 20, the Lord will not be willing to forgive him. But rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Okay. And so he warns here that, that he's speaking to everybody. Verse 21, the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of law. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of the land... And the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown, nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? then the people will say it's because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them and brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so notice, God is going to use them as a witness one way or another, either in their blessing or in their destruction. The nations will talk. They will see. It'll either be huge, miraculous blessing or incredible, devastating destruction, but it will be, it will be public. It will be unmissable. It'll cause the nations to talk. Um, So, he brought them out of the land of Egypt, but they went and served other gods, verse 26, and worshiped them, gods who they'd not known, who he'd not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the land, bringing upon it the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from the land in anger and fury and great wrath, and cast them into another land as they are this day. Then notice this, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so he makes a distinction here. He says, some things God hasn't told us. He says, but there is things he's told us. He's laid it out from the beginning. He's warned us of what's to come. (coughs) Now, we have to finish chapter 30, and it's not just to keep on track. It's because I don't want to leave things there, because Moses doesn't leave things there. So we need to read chapter 30. When all these things come upon you. Now notice the tense there. Notice the tense. Everything else is, if you do this, here's the consequences. That's not what this is. Moses steps in as a prophet and he says, you will do this. And the consequences will come. And when they do come, that's what he says here in verse 1. When all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse when I've set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, like Daniel, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. Even their unfaithfulness, even their failure and their turning from God and their judgment because of that will not be the last word. God will meet them there in their destruction, in their devastation, when they're merely a remnant left. He will gather them again from all the peoples where the Lord your God scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possess, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers." And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And so notice what's different here. These promises that are given have a permanence to them. It's not, and I will bless you, and if you do it again, I will bring back the curses. It just speaks here of abundant, permanent prosperity. And it says, on top of that, I'm going to, in verse 6, Circumcise your hearts so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, that you may live. He's going to do something new. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both pick up on this verse and they begin to speak of what they call the new covenant. That God's going to do something new, and as he brings, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are both talking to the exiled people. Jeremiah in the future tense, Ezekiel in the present tense. And he says, God's going to bring us back into the land and then he's going to do something new. He's going to take out our heart of stone and he's going to put in our heart of flesh. He's going to make a new covenant and no longer will you have to teach anyone, know the Lord because all Israel will know the Lord. This is the thing that Jesus points to at the last supper with his disciples when he hands around the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. God's going to do something new and it's referenced all the way back here in Deuteronomy and even Israel's path to destruction of self-destruction and devastation is getting to this point, leading to this significant thing that God's going to do. Verse 7, the Lord your God will put all the curses on your foes and enemies who persecute you and you'll again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all the commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and the fruit of your ground. For the Lord again will take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of law. When you return to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now I want to say something really quickly for future study. Those verses that we just read, 30 verse 1 through verse 10, they're chiastic in structure. It ends in the same place it begins with love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Um, And at the very center is this great act of God that he will circumcise their hearts. But every section on each side is parallel one to another with that being the point of the arrow or the pinnacle of the pyramid. It's intentional chiastic structure, which is a primary way that the Hebrews lay things out. And it's to set the weight on that. It's, to, it's, like, it's like an X. That's where we get the word chi from the Greek letter X. Okay? And right where X marks the spot is this great act of the new covenant that Moses reveals here, which is mind-blowing because he's doing this in the inauguration of the old covenant. The new covenant is not plan B. It's plan A, and it moves through the old covenant to get there. Let's close out here with the rest of the chapter. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who would ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. He says, the things that I've laid out before you today, they're revealed. They're handed to you. You have the whole manual. You don't, you don't have to say, I wonder what God desires of us. It's laid out. Now, interestingly enough, in the book of Romans, it's this verse that Paul picks up to talk about the new covenant. And he says, in the same way that God's will and plan is revealed in the giving of the covenant through the prophet Moses, so also in a greater way is God's real, uh, will and plan revealed in God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And so we don't have to ascend to heaven and go, who is God? Because God came down in Jesus Christ. And we don't have to go into Sheol. He takes what here is the sea and he says, go into the depths of Sheol. We don't have to wonder what's after death because Jesus has been there and revealed it to us. Finally, verse 15, see I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. Two paths, two different ways. Joshua being the servant of Moses and a student of the covenant, Joshua chapter 1. This is the appeal he makes in his old age. Choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the whole point of Moses' sermon. It's all led to this point. Everything that he's told us, the way that he's put it, the structure that he's arranged, is to get to this point, to say two paths ahead of you, Israel, life and death, blessing and curse good and evil. Verse 16, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and to possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death. And so he he sets this up like an official happening, this covenant ceremony. And the witnesses are not just Moses and Israel, but heaven and the earth itself. All of nature is observing this. And he says, (coughs) he says, they're the witnesses today of what? that I've set before you today life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. That, I think, is worth meditating on a little bit more than we have time for tonight. He says, choose life, and what is that life? God is that life. Not just his rules, not just his blessings that are on the other side of the rules, but God himself is life, And what we have in the covenant is what it looks like to live a life in reference to God. And it finishes here and it says, he is life in length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So <clears throat> this is Moses' great sermon and what follows is somewhat of an appendix which we'll look at next week. Let's pray. God, in some ways... Our options are different than Israel. Our covenant is different than Israel's. But in other ways, the choice is the same. It's a daily choice between life and death. Between your ways, which are good and lead to life, and our ways, which always lead to death. Paul says the same thing in Galatians. He says that we will reap what we sow, whether we sow to corruption and therefore lead to death, or sow life and therefore reap eternal life. I pray, God, that we would remember who you are, what you've done in our life, the warnings that you've so lovingly given given us that sometimes ring in our life so loudly to draw attention to the fact that we're off track, that we're headed the wrong way, to call us back compassionately to you, to set right the relationship. I ask, God, that we would heed and we would hear those things. I pray that you would make repentance daily reflex in our life and that we would keep ourselves close to you so that we would know life because you are life in jesus name we pray amen amen have a good night